Please uh, bow your heads as we pray. Father God, this is the day that you have made, and we rejoice. We are glad. Your people long for you, O God, and we give thanks for your unending and never-failing love. Thank you for having compassion and mercy upon us, sinners as we are. Father, we lift up Lane and Wynne Jones as Lane is recovering at Aspire. We pray for Bill Hay, who is in the hospital, and for his wife, Cindy, for her care and comfort. Please be with Louise Slingliff and Raleigh Bates in their recoveries. Father, we pray for our ministry partner, Sacred Road Ministries, in Washington and Oregon. And God, we praise you for two special events this week, General Assembly, which was held in Memphis, and Vacation Bible School here at Covenant. Lord, we thank you for the servant leaders you've called and who gathered at General Assembly. And we give you praise for the children who gathered here at Covenant this week, with special thanks for the many volunteers and staff who shared the gospel in fun and engaging ways. Dear God, on this Father's Day, we thank you for the gift of dads in this life. We thank you that you are the greatest dad ever, Abba, Father, and we know that you cover us in your great love. We pray for your blessing, favor, and strength on every dad in this world. We ask for your renewed courage, for your boldness, for your spirit to fill all of them. We ask that you would keep their footsteps firm and guard their way. We ask that you would help them to always stand strong as men of faith and help all of us to imitate your unflinching love, your sacrifice, and your forgiveness. Lord, we pray that you would raise up mighty men, godly men in this generation, those who would know and honor you with their entire lives. May they grow in their love and passion for you, for their families, and in the calling to follow you above all else. Thank you, God, that your word is true, 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 as our children rightly remind us. We hold fast to you today and give you all praise and honor. This we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning to all of you. Uh, as Dave said, I'm Walt Davis. I know a lot of you, but not all of you. Um, I don't really have a claim to fame here that you would know me by, other than the fact that I did marry uh, Rachel Shields. Um, I, you know, I think the whole church is, is pleased to see that that sacred lady, the marriage is working out okay thus far. Um, but yes, I am Rachel Shields' husband. She works uh, in the youth. She's assistant uh, girls youth director. Um, I am the son-in-law of Catherine and Jamie Shields. I am the brother of Joseph Shields and the brother-in-law of Curtis Shields. And I've been introduced in this church numerous times as Walt Shields. Um, and, and it's a, it's a, it's a uh, you know, good title around here. I, I almost think I should have just embraced it, right? Um, but, I, you know, every time I, I am in this church, especially when I speak to any of you, I'm reminded how thankful I am for this church. I mean, as I just said, for starters, you know, this church has given me so much. You've raised my wife. You've given me great in-laws. Uh, when I ran RUF's ministry at Sanford, it was this church that gave me an office. When COVID hit, we ran the whole ministry out of this church. We had a large group right here. I had one-on-ones there. Um, we had Bible studies in the patio. We, I mean, this church has given me so much. And now, don't let me forget this, 
all my slack as a father, the children's ministry is picking up, right? Uh, so I am uh, quite thankful for, uh, for this church. As you know, we've been walking through 1 Peter, um, and I find the, the book of 1 Peter to be uh, kind of fun because, you know, Paul strikes us kind of as this like PhD theologian, and I'm not trying to criticize Peter here, but, you know, Paul's so organized in his writing. You get like this wonderful, uh, it almost looks like it's pastor and editor type theology in the front of his letters, then it flows into practical living, and it's just ni- nice and organized. Peter's a little more like me, and he's a little more all over the place. Uh, I kind of think of this epistle more like a song, like it, it kind of has a stanza about, um, you know, some rich theology. You think chapter one, he reminds us, hey, you've been born again. So we have a stanza about theology and then a chorus about practical living. Uh, so Paul, you know, comes, when Peter comes to us and he says, be holy. This father you now have, he's holy. Reflect him in the world. Chapter two. Peter reminds us at the beginning, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. In other words, you are a heavenly outpost. And then he begins a lengthy section where he describes, here's how people that um, live in that heavenly outpost, here's how they live in the world. Here's the practical side of that. He talks about how we live as citizens. He talks about how we live as employees. He talks about how Christians live as husbands and wives. The text we come to today is kind of the summary Uh, paragraph of this practical section. So if you look with me, uh, it's 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. And if I could put it in one sentence for you, if I could put it in one sentence for you, the point, the emphasis of these verses is this, living godly lives is worth it. Living godly lives is is worth it. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, perhaps you're like me, I want more than ever to lead a godly life. And the ungodly ways that somehow characterize my life are more clear than ever. And it does take effort. And this is a passage of um, instruction and hope. Lean in. Living godly lives is worth it. And it's worth it because it's the good life, as we'll look at. Doesn't mean life on this side of eternity is really going to be, you know, perfect. It, as Peter says, will be filled with suffering. But things in general go better for those who lead godly lives. And then secondly, our godly living is part of our mission. That's how we live on mission. That is our witness. So we'll look at all those things. Look with me at verse 8 as I read it out loud. Oh, we stand here, don't we? Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, do not reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. All flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You can be seated. Let me pray as you're getting seated. Lord, 
Help us to believe this morning that you meet your people and your people are gathered. And we come before you, Lord, in a variety of places, some of us with great joy because the affairs of our life have been good over the past week or we are in a season where things are simply joyful. Others of us come, Lord, uh, with sadness because the brokenness of the world is weighing heavenly upon them. And most of us probably come with a mix of the two as we inhabit your good world that has now uh, been infiltrated with sin. God, help us to believe this morning that you care about each place we're in. You know it well, and you meet us there. Meet us this morning, we pray. Amen. Very simple structure for this morning. There's not many verses, just two things. Peter wants us to see what godly living looks like inside the church, one. And two, he wants us to see what godly living looks like outside the church. So look at me at verse eight. This deals with godly living inside the church. You see the first few words there. Finally, all of you, who is the all of you? It's the church. It's the churches he's writing to. And one of the first things he said, godly living inside the church, one of the first things he encourages uh, these church members to do is to have unity of mind. Now, let's be real, you know, uh, clear about this. Peter isn't saying, agree on everything. And isn't it nice that's the case? But he is saying this, identify the main thing and have a common pursuit of that main thing. Know what it is and strive after that. Many of you know that in our denomination, uh, just recently, about a month ago, we lost two of our you know, most well-known leaders in the span of 24 hours. Harry Reeder, Tim Keller passed away all of a sudden um, in a short span of time. And all the surprise and the sorrow and the gratitude as we look back on the ministry of these two men, there is something beautiful about them passing together because we're forced to consider them together. Some of you may know these two men were on opposite sides of a lot of the debates that's kind of taken place in our denomination over the past five years. And yet, what a lot of people don't realize is this. How did these two men die as friends? Few people know that they were actually in a small group together that had met together for decades Flying in from all over the country, there were about five or six men who meet together, enjoy one another's company, encourage each other, enjoy the friendship, pray, hear how ministry was going. These men were friends. How was it that they disagreed, sometimes passionately, on a number of of items before our denomination, important things, and yet their friendship was never impaired? How, How was that? Well, here's how. They knew the main thing. And they knew they were both striving after the same main thing, okay? Fortunately, at Covenant, our church has given us a great gift. It's very easy to know what the main thing is around here. It's printed in the square little booklets that are in front of you. We've had a committee define our mission. Our mission is to gather and worship and rest in the gospel, grow in our relationship with the Lord and our relationships with each each other, And then go 
as people who want to bring the good news and be salt and light out in the world. That's the main thing around here. And here's what's great about that. So long as we know the main thing, then it frames our conversations about church matters in a totally different way. Now, we're not, you know, um, on the debate stage trying to win people away from others towards our vision for the church. No, no, no. We're on the same team trying to figure out how is it exactly that we pursue this vision. We may disagree on that, but that's fine. We're collaborating, right? So it is a game changer when those in the church know the main thing and they're united around the main thing. We become on the same team and our disagreements don't hinder our friendship. They don't hinder the fact that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're collaborating, trying to figure out what is the best way to pursue this main thing. There are three other qualities uh, that Peter lists for. Um, Let me handle the next three together because there's a lot of overlap here. Sympathy, brotherly love, and compassion. Sympathy and compassion obviously have a lot in common. Uh, What does compassion mean? It means with passion. Well, what are we passionate about? What do we do with passion? We care about the well-being of others with passion. We give, we ask, we call, we cook meals. We let our emotions be affected by theirs, right? That's what sympathy is. And that's not easy, right? Life's often hard. And some of the things, sometimes what we don't want is to feel the burden that others are going through. But gosh, when you're the one in the hard place, isn't it nice to have someone who will enter that difficult spot with you? So we're people of sympathy and compassion. But I want to spend a minute on brotherly love because <laughs> this is one I think that is easy to misunderstand. I, for some reason, I think when folks throw around this Greek word, Philadelphia, we kind of get the warm and fuzzies. But time out. I mean, who's raised sons around here? Right? Uh, what, does brother, what do brothers typically do? Well, they're fighting half the time, right? But I know what my sons do. They fight like crazy And then when we say, hey, it's time to go, it's like all that's behind them. And suddenly they're allies again, marching out the door, ready to take on the world. I mean, it's the wildest thing. I'm like, man, you know, this is going to result in like seven counseling sessions. They're like, no, we're we're perfectly, in fact, don't send my brother to time out. I really want to play with him right now. I mean, so here's the point. When, When Peter says, have brotherly love, I want you to know this. It's not a metaphor. He's not saying love as if you're brothers and sisters. He's saying you share a common father. You are spiritual brothers and sisters. Therefore, stick together. Stick together. Don't cut each other out. And think about how powerful this is to the looking to the world outside. When, when you're talking to your friends and don't go to this church and they learn so-and-so said this and it offended you. And then the next thing they hear is, yeah, I'm serving on a, a committee with them. And they're like, what? Wait, what? I, th- I, thought, I thought that was the person that said this. And you're like, yeah, it is that person. They say, what are you doing? And you say, I mean, you know, it's family. We stick together. That's powerful, right? I, I want to be in a family like that. I want to be in a family where I just kind of know people are going to stick with me. So it's our witness as well. Brotherly love. Lastly, um, in terms of church members caring for one another, humility. I think it's easy to think of humility as, and, and perhaps in decades ago, this was the prevailing notion for humility, uh, that it, it means like 
you don't like yourself, right? Or you think you're just maximally terrible. Well, the Bible does want you to know you're a sinner and that you're not God. Um, But the term humility is a relational term. The term humility means more of this. When you're in the presence of another human being, you realize you're in the presence of God's crown jewel of creation. And just like when you stand on the precipice of the Grand Canyon and you kind of forget yourself in curiosity and wonder of what's before you, that's how we relate to one another. There is a self-forgetfulness that happens as we look upon another and we are curious and we respect them and we admire them and we want to care for them. That's the humility that Peter has in mind here. And if I may, um, I want to talk, humility, you know, there aren't many contexts where humility is irrelevant, um, but I want to talk about one context in particular, given that it's Father's Day, and that is humility in our homes. Peter is wanting us to think about how we care and treat other church members. Well, let's be frank for a second. The church members we spend the most time with are the ones living under our roof, right? What does humility look like there? Is parenting not one of the ultimate calls and exercises of humility? I mean, I I sometimes feel like I'm a father of three, that it's like a divine prank. It's It's like God said, Walt, are you ready to live for me and pour out your life for another? And I say, yes, Lord, I am. What grand venture do you have for me? And he says, I have a five-year-old, a two-year-old, and a six-month-old. Here you go. You just knock yourself out. And I wonder, did I miss the on-ramp here? I mean, I'm not sure this is what I was equipped for. Parenting is the ultimate exercise in humility. Christians prioritize our little ones. And this is what was so shocking about our Lord, our Savior, right? Not only does he leave heaven, come to earth to serve us who resemble children a lot, but then when his ministry is underway, what does he do? He's dining with important people one second, and the next second, he's telling those important people to get out of the way so fussy, dirty children can come to him. He's an important man. He's got masses following him, and yet he's got all kinds of time for those whose society says are little people. We follow our Lord in that example. A quick word specifically to fathers. Fathers, if your house is like mine, uh, both you and your wife, you know, are struggling to figure out the parenting thing, but it does kind of feel like she has superpowers you don't have. Um, I mean, I watch my wife and I'm like, "I, I know it wasn't easy for you, but that went a lot easier for you than it does for me. Sometimes I feel like, you know, my transition into fatherhood, I feel like sometimes I just got like plopped down in this, you know, far off planet of some far off galaxy. And I'm looking around like, how do I inhabit this place? What, well, how are my gifts, you know, like to be used here? There are a few things that have been more challenging to me than becoming a dad. But I want to stand before you this morning and say this as a struggling, imperfect father. The effort required is enormous, and it is worth the effort. Christian humility, as parents, requires at least two things. And I have to be honest with you, there are no replacing these two things. Time and presence. 
There is no getting around this. And it's remarkable, and this is an encouragement to you. It's remarkable how effective of a father you can be if you give those two things. You can fumble on a lot of other things, but if you give time and presence, you will be a sufficient dad. Let me illustrate this positively and negatively. Negatively first. When I was an RF campus minister, I had a girl who was the daughter of a guy who had uh, bought like a business that had a manufacturing plant when he was in his 20s. He poured his heart and soul into that business and made tons of money. If I told you the name of it, you'd probably recognize it. She was in my office talking about her dad. And she said, Walt, I remember playing soccer and dribbling the ball down the field and dribbling the ball out of bounds because I was looking up to see my dad in the stands to see if he was paying attention to me and he was punching out emails on his phone and taking calls at the concession stand. She said, with tears coming down her face, my dad just sold his company. He set up funds for all the children. There's a lot of money in those funds. And the honest truth is I would give up all the money to know my dad and for my dad to know me. There is no replacement for time and presence. Positively, I talked with a guy a couple years ago. We were talking about his dad, and he kind of laughed and said, you know, I'll be honest with you, my dad never really found his niche professionally. We didn't have a lot of money, and he bounced around jobs a little bit. Um, and there were times when I was frustrated, like I wish we could do some of the things that like other families can do because their dads are you know, real successful in their, their realm. He said, but my dad nailed the majors. He nailed the majors. I knew that he loved me. He showed up. He taught me how to treat others. And he introduced me to the Lord. I love my dad. I'm so thankful for him. This isn't groundbreaking, I know, but one of the hindrances, I think, to men really investing in their family is that a lot of times we feel like, man, the gifts that are needed aren't mine, or it's hard to see the importance of the ordinary routine tasks that parenting often involves. And let me say it again, it's worth the effort. I was talking to someone like three weeks ago, they learned I went to Ole Miss. And they said, hey, do you know so-and-so by chance? And the person they named was the person that crossed my path sophomore year of college when I was a lost man. And the person they named knew what was living for, what was worth living for. And a year after getting to know him, I was walking in an entirely different direction We all have people like this in our lives, do we not? We're thinking of them right now. And here's what I want you to consider. Someone raised those people. They didn't become critical folks on your spiritual journey on their own. Someone raised them. And here's my question for you. Where is the next generation of those people Where are they right now? They're in your homes. They're around your dining room tables. They sleep in your beds. And you have the privilege to mold and shape these people that will one day play these roles in others' lives. And let me just hold out a vision for you. What if the grand reunion of heaven involves this? 
Someone coming up to you who spent a lot of your life trying to raise your kids well. What if it involves this? Oh, wait, you said you're so-and-so's dad? You said you're her dad? That girl came to my life and cha- it changed my life. She's one of the reasons I'm here today in heaven. What if part of heaven is connecting the dots and realizing all the stuff that the Lord did with the efforts that we put into our own children? Will that not be worth it? Will that not be glorious? Parenting is so hard. It is also a gift, and it is worth the effort. I want to say this on a personal note. You all, I told you I struggle in this department. You all have been an inspiration to me. And the main thing I want to say is, Stay at it. Stay at it. It's what Christians do, and it's worth it. One last point. How Christians relate to the outside world. Look with me at uh, at verse 9. Peter instructs us that when we're slandered by the outside world for our faith, we don't slander back, right? But I want to read verses 10 and 11 again. This is where he quotes uh, Psalm 34. Listen to I read this. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So you have something negative, right? Do not deceive others. Positively, be honest. And then you have another positive, seek peace, right? Remember, Peter wants us to grasp these things because they are a huge part of our witness. Peter's written in in chapter 2, hey, when you do good works, he doesn't say, it's cool because your moral scorecard looks great. That's not what he says. It's way more important than that. He says, hey, when you do good works, people see it and they glorify God. People see something different and they want to know, why do you function this way? It's missional. So let's talk about what seeking peace and being honest looks like in our lives. High schoolers and college students. What does it look like to be honest and seek peace? It means when the temptation comes to run down your peer to bump your social standing. It means when the temptation comes to lie about someone so that you look better. You don't do it. Don't do that. It also means, if I can be very candid... That when you're interacting with people of the opposite sex, do not verbally or with your body convey to them you like them when you don't. Yes, it feels really good to be liked by someone else. Do not convey, do not convey one thing to them if it's not in fact true. Anyone who's been in college, been through college knows it can be really damaging. Care about the other people. Be honest with them. Seek peace with them. In our professions... If you're in the business world, I mean, is there anything that destroys peace like being deceived? Is it not brutal to put all kinds of time and energy into a project to work on a deal and and get to the end of it and realize you didn't hold true to your promise? It's brutal. And I will tell you, I'm currently working for a construction company as I do some additional theological studying. I am humbled to the dirt at the temptation that I feel to deceive clients in order to land the deal. I mean, if I can frame their situation as more desperate than it really is, and I can play up what my services offer, oh man, that deal closes way faster, way faster. 
and I just lied, right? I just deceived someone. As Christians, we care as much about the client, the person involved, as we do about the deal itself. And so we are honest. And think about this. This is our mission. We reflect the integrity of our God when we deal in this way. It's the last thing I'm going to say. Look at verse 12. Why do we do this? Does it not say, the eye of the Lord is on the righteous? Let me tell you what that means. Just like when you parents learn of your kids living the way you've taught them in outside of your home, you know how you fill with delight? Oh my gosh, they're doing it the way I taught them. That's the delight our Heavenly Father feels when we live the ways He's taught us in this world. Think about Jesus. You remember the scene where the widow uh, is in line, the offering line, and the Pharisees and Sadducees are dumping big bags of money in, and everyone hears it, and everyone's impressed. And then the widow comes up and drops two coins in. And remember what Jesus does? He gathers the disciples around, and he says, look. Look right there. That's generosity. That's beautiful. Y'all, as we seek peace in this world, as we, we deal honestly in this world, know this. Our Father looks down with immense delight. That's my son. That's my daughter living the way I taught them. You bring your creator delight when you follow his ways. What an honor. Let's pray. Lord, you have dealt with us generously. You have dealt with us truthfully. And Jesus, how, how much more comfortable would it have been for you to come here and just not tell the truth, not tell the world that you were the Messiah, and not tell us that we needed to repent? Your life would have been more comfortable, but you loved us, and so you were honest with us. Father, give us humility. Give us love for brothers and sisters that we might care for them and reflect your care for them as we interact with others in this world. Amen.